Well, this morning, as we gather together around God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to John chapter 20. If you'd also like to use a, a, a Bible app, like the ESV Bible app, you can find that on the App Store or use Bible Gateway on any internet-connected device. But we do encourage you to follow along with us in the Bible as we make our way through the passage this morning. John chapter 20, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 18. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. As we turn there, we, we find these words. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray again that uh, as we have our Bibles open before us, as we hear your voice, that you would lift our gaze and open our eyes, that you would help us to receive Jesus in our hearts so that we might become the sons and daughters of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The closing argument. You don't have to practice law or have to have been in a courtroom to know what one is. It is the high drama mark in every courtroom television show or true crime documentary. It is the payoff pitch. You watch with bated breath as attorneys representing both plaintiff and defendant state their final case to the jury. To the jury. You marvel as representatives of both sides use all of their abilities of reason and rhetoric to convince jurors to side with their client. You wait to hear that most powerful of 
legal mic drops, I rest my case. One attorney describes the closing argument as, quotes, the show. She continues by saying that it is your opportunity as a lawyer to stand in front of the jury and for the first time, I think she may mean the last time, to explain to that jury how the theory matches the evidence and, provides, and provide them with argument, the closing argument. I want to invite you this morning into a courtroom, so to speak, and to witness a master in the closing argument lay before us the evidence about the person of Jesus. Now that attorney, that, uh, that arguer, you might uh, call him, is the Apostle John himself, the writer of this great book, The Gospel According to John. Now it's true that his closing argument doesn't come to us until uh, verses 30 and 31 of the chapter that we're looking at together this morning, which read, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is John's closing argument about Jesus. In light of all of the signs that he provides us with throughout the gospel according to John, turning the water into wine, um, healing a man who had been lame from birth, raising Lazarus from the dead, just to name a few. In light of all of these signs, which point to the significance of Jesus, John means to convince us that he is the Christ, the Son of, of God, and that in believing these things about Jesus, that you and I would have life in his name. And it seems to me that here at the end of his gospel, just before John presents us with his closing argument, he brings one last piece of evidence to the table. And it is the ultimate evidence to who Jesus is. And that ultimate evidence has everything to do with the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. What's true of John's gospel in total, that John wants us to see who Jesus is and so then to see the significance of Jesus for us, believing in him we might have life in his name. That same kind of purpose resides in the passage that we've just read together. Because in this passage, what John wants more than anything for you and for me is to see that the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. And that being raised from the dead... Jesus not only proves himself to be the Son of God, but he makes it possible for you and I to be the very sons and daughters of God as well. Jesus is the Son of God who by his resurrection allows you and I to become sons and daughters of God. Now, I hope you'll follow along with me as we make our way through this passage and attempt to feel the force of what, what John writes to us. Really, uh, I... I there are three movements or sections in the passage before us. In verses 1 through 15, we're going to ask the question, where has he been laid? And then in verse 16, we're going to see that he calls his own by name. And then in verses 17 to the end of the chapter, we're going to learn about our God and our Father. So firstly, where has Jesus been laid? Secondly, he calls his own by his name. And thirdly, our God and our Father. Our God and our Father. So first we ask the question, where has Jesus been 
laid. That is really the burden of the first 15 verses of this passage. Now, I want to just point out that the very first thing that I notice about this text is how much it rings of eyewitness testimony and credibility. There are certain things that are included in this passage that just wouldn't have been included if the writer John hadn't witnessed them firsthand. He's writing from experience, from things that he's seen, things that he's heard, things that he has encountered. And what's wonderful about that is that he presents the facts of the resurrection, warts and all, even when it comes at cost to himself. I mean, do you really believe that if John were trying to write sort of the Jerusalem version of fake news in the Jerusalem times, that he would have included so many things that paint him in a somewhat negative light. For instance, he's free to confess, though he's a writer of Scripture, that when he first looked into the tomb and believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead, that at that moment in time, he had not yet understood the Scripture. Here is a writer of Scripture telling us that at one point he wasn't even an understander of Scripture, if you will. What's more, he's quick to include this little factoid that as he runs with Peter to the empty tomb to witness what Mary announces that Jesus had been taken from the tomb, uh, that he outran Peter on the way. He kept pace with Peter for a good amount of time, but then eventually sped past him to get to the tomb first. Just so typical for a man to include that he was faster than his friend. No one was going to beat John on this first Easter Sunday 5K. No, he was a witness of these things and so was able to include them. And even those things that he didn't witness firsthand, he presents with stunning frankness. I mean, imagine the way in which Mary Magdalene is portrayed in this passage. Certainly there's much to commend her in this text. She's seemingly the first person at the empty tomb. One of the commentators mentioned that she was one of the last people at the cross and yet one of the first people at the empty tomb. Certainly there is much to commend about Mary Magdalene. But it seems as though when she first discovers the stone rolled away from the tomb that she doesn't even consider that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That, that explanation is not even on her radar. Instead, she is quick to believe that someone has come and stolen the body. That's what she runs and tells Peter and John. Someone's taken Jesus and we don't know where they've laid him. What's more, when Jesus finally appears to her, she initially doesn't recognize him but mistakes him to be the gardener. Now I ask you again, if someone were sort of trying to come up with a fictitious story about the resurrection of Jesus and they're witnessing to the fact of the resurrection of Jesus, do you really think that they would include all of these sort of random details that make them look less than perfect. I mean, do we really believe that John is trying to leverage these negative aspects about himself and his friends as a witness to their credibility in testifying to the resurrection? I mean, if you believe that, there's it's just far too many things for me to believe before I've even opened my Easter bunny for this morning. No, John is presenting the facts as they exist. He's presenting the facts about himself, about his friends, and about their interpretation of the empty tomb, warts and all. Because, to quote another John, John Adams, facts are stubborn things, even when they present us in a negative light. 
Now, this whole passage carries the weight of authenticity and truthfulness. And so we, we must be quick to listen. Now, the issue in all of the passage, really, is where is Jesus? That's the question that we asked at the beginning. Where has Jesus been laid? Where has his body gone? Mary, after having arriving, arrived at the tomb, first thing on Sunday morning, sees that the stone, verse 1, had been taken away from the tomb. And before looking in or really giving any time to consider what might have happened, she runs. Incidentally, there is a lot of running in this passage. And arrives wherever Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, the writer of this gospel, were. And she announces to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Where is Jesus? Now, it's true that Jesus had been buried rather quickly out of expediency. Having been crucified on uh, Friday, he was uh, going to be buried. And yet, because of the Jewish day of preparation, chapter 19, verse, verse 42, they put Jesus in a garden tomb nearby. It was quick and it was convenient. So Mary believes that perhaps the owners of the tomb, or the gardener, maybe, someone, they, whoever they are, didn't like where Jesus had been laid to rest, and so they decided that they would up and move him. That's Mary's understanding of the situation. It's rational, it's reasonable, but it's not, it's not what happened. Peter and John, excited as they are about the news that they've been told, certainly wondering what had happened themselves and being quick to go and investigate, run to this empty tomb. Again, they run together for quite some time, but John is quick to tell us and to point out that he arrived first. Not like anyone's counting, it was just a friendly foot race. I'm sure they weren't thinking about racing at all on this occasion. But as Peter and John arrive on the scene, they begin to take turns, both looking into the tomb and then eventually stepping into the tomb themselves. And what they discover when they arrive, as they examine all of the evidence, simply doesn't square up with Mary's interpretation. Because as they stoop into the tomb and as they look in, they find, verse 5, linen cloths lying there. And then, as Peter goes in, verse 6, he saw linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Here are the grave clothes, if you will. Those linen cloths used to wrap a deceased body up before burial. And they're still lying there. Even though Jesus is not. Now, if the interpretation of Mary is true, that someone had come and moved the body... That was strange enough behavior. But to move the body without moving the grave clothes would have been even stranger indeed. Why, Peter and John must have asked themselves, why would someone have moved the body but not moved the linen cloths? Why would someone come and steal away the body of Jesus to, to bury him elsewhere, but remove the grave clothes before they did so? And what's more than that, if, in fact, someone was strange enough to do something of that sort, why would they fold up the face cloth and lie it neatly where his head had been resting? 
See, as John and Peter look in, and specifically John, as John looks into the tomb and sees the clothes lying there, he comes to understand something very different than Mary. He comes to understand that the the right explanation of the empty tomb isn't that someone took the body of Jesus away. No, the presence of the cloths and the absence of Jesus point to the fact that Jesus himself had been raised from the dead and that the leaving behind of the linen cloths was evidence not of someone stealing away the body, but of a man who no longer needed grave clothes. There is a uh, a viral video of uh, a former admiral who delivers a speech to uh, a group of people that is a Uh, a motivational speech. And this admiral um, begins his speech by saying, if you want to change the world, start by making your bed. It's one of those very motivational speeches that makes you feel like you can run through a wall. And it's a wonderful and very um, uh, beneficial speech to listen to. But with all due respect to this admiral, I want you to see what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't change the world by making his bed. Jesus changed the world by raising from the dead, and then he made his bed. Jesus took, apart, took off the grave clothes and folded them and laid them neatly in the tomb because he no longer needed them, because he had been raised from the dead. And as John looks into this tomb and sees the grave clothes folded up and in the corner, he he comes to understand something that is so powerfully uh, demonstrated in one of the great modern hymns of the faith. See what a morning, gloriously bright, with the dawning of hope in Jerusalem, folded the grave clothes, tomb filled with light, as the angels announce Christ is risen. See God's salvation plan, wrought in love, born in pain, paid in sacrifice, fulfilled in Christ the man, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. You see, in this text, it is the fact of the empty tomb which convinces John the disciple that Jesus has been raised. It is not in any sense of the word his sort of preconceived understanding of the scriptures that he tried to wedge Jesus into. No, he tells us very plainly in verse 9 that he had not yet even understood the scriptures. It was rather the evidence of Jesus no longer being in the grave that convinced him to believe that Jesus himself is the Christ and the Son of God, that he is the Savior of his people, and so he believes. And then at that moment, the disciples fade into the background as Mary Magdalene comes once again into the foreground. And we wonder at this point if Mary Magdalene has had the same experience as John. Had she looked into the tomb as well and seen the folded grave clothes and decided that Jesus must have been raised from the dead? And the answer that we we get almost immediately is no. Mary returns to the tomb not to rejoice, not to believe, but to weep. Because in her mind, all of her hopes and dreams that were bound up in the person of Jesus, all of the love and admiration she had for the man who once cast out demons from her, 
poured out from her tear ducts as she mourned his loss. And by the time that she finally does stoop to look into the tomb, she sees there not Jesus nor his grave clothes, but two angels in white, verse 13, 12 rather, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they ask her this very curious question, woman, why are you weeping? See, in that question, there is a gentle rebuke of Mary's unbelief. And she responds to the angels in very much the same way that she announced to Peter and John. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Where is Jesus? And having said this to the angels, we read that she turned around and saw Jesus standing. Now, there's something so wonderful and so beautiful here in this portion of the passage that it's almost, um, it's almost easy to miss. And that is that Mary has been preoccupied this entire time with a question that we've said is the heading of this portion of the passage. Where has Jesus been laid? Where is Jesus lying? The presupposition in that question is that Jesus is dead. And yet, do you notice that Jesus is not lying anywhere? Because Jesus is standing. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. No longer dead, no longer lying, no longer buried. And yet, she did not know that it was Jesus. I almost wonder if John includes this portion of the passage, not only to present the facts warts and all, but also as a a bit of of comic relief and all of the tension here of Mary's unbelief. Because as Jesus appears to Mary, he begins to speak to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? The question is clearly rhetorical. It's a bit like when you ask your children, who are you talking to? And they say something disrespectful. It's an invitation to ponder who you are. Whom are you seeking? Jesus stands before her in resurrection glory and and says, Whom are you seeking? The risen Savior stood before her. But supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Sir, if you have carried him away. So much beautiful gospel truth in that phrase because Jesus in fact had carried himself away as his body was brought back to life and he's and as he walked out of the tomb where is Jesus that is Mary's ultimate question it's the question that she asked as she ran to Peter and John it is the question that she asked as she spoke with the angels it is the question that she asked even as she stood before the risen Savior. Where is Jesus? And it's not until we come to our second heading of the passage that Mary begins to see what she previously was unable to see. And I want you to notice that it had far more to do with hearing than it had to do with seeing. Our second heading in this passage is that He, that is Jesus, calls his own by name. There is one word in this passage that 
comes with such beauty and force and power that it completely unhinges Mary. And that word is simply her name. Jesus said to her, verse 16, Mary. There's something in that voice, something in the the sound of hearing her name called out by this supposed gardener that opens Mary's eyes and melts her heart. I know a young man who lost his mother at a very young age, and he will tell you that early on after his mother had passed away, that every time the phone rang, he would run to the phone with great anticipation, hoping that it was all merely a bad dream, and that on the other end of the phone he would hear his mother's voice say his name. And yet it never happened. Because death is not just merely a bad dream. Death is a reality that comes to each and every one of us on account of sin. However, Jesus, the unique and only Son of God, dies for sin and then rises from the dead, victorious over sin, so that to this point in history, He is the only one whose voice is on the other end of the phone, who can whisper with tender mercy to this seemingly blind disciple, Mary. You know, there's something about hearing another person say your name. Perhaps someone that you didn't know recognized you or didn't know knew you. And when they greet you by your name, you feel loved and appreciated and cherished. And I can't even imagine what Mary must have felt when she heard the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected glory say her name, Mary. And in hearing this, she turned to him and cried out, Teacher. Jesus, earlier in the gospel, according to John, speaking of himself as the good shepherd, says, The sheep hear his voice, my voice. And I call my own sheep by name and lead them out. Chapter 10, verse 3. And here we have the clearest expression of that truth that Jesus calls his own by name. On this side of the resurrection, he calls each and every one of us, not only Mary, but every man or woman, boy or girl who would believe on his name has heard his voice call for them. Maybe this morning as you hear the account of the resurrected Jesus, you feel the Holy Spirit stirring in your heart and you hear the Lord himself calling your name, Mike, Mary. Pray that your heart would be melted and that you would believe. Where has Jesus been laid? He calls his own by their name. And finally, our Father and our God. Now in the resurrection of Jesus, we have a declaration of who Jesus is. That's the thrust of John's gospel. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. How how else could Jesus have been raised from the dead if this were not true? 
But you see, there's, there's more to it than that. Because we began by saying that Jesus is not only the Son of God, and that's not only proven in His res- resurrection, but it's through His resurrection that you and I might become sons and daughters of God as well. As Mary clings to Jesus in this resurrection appearance, He says to her in verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, don't cling to me as if I'm going to disappear or leave anytime soon. I'm not yet ascending, but I'm, or I have not yet ascended, but I'm in the process of ascending. I'm soon to ascend. Rather than clinging to me, I want you to go, notice what Jesus says, to my brothers. And I want you to say to them, I am ascending to my Father. Resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm ascending to my Father. But notice what else he says. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. I'm ascending to my God and your God. Ascending is merely a description of what Jesus does subsequent to the resurrection. He not only rises from the dead, but he ascends to be with the Father in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But here, Jesus is giving us evidence that, that in his resurrection, he not only is proven to be the Son of God, but that in his work as the Son of God for you and for me, in his resurrection, he can say that I am ascending to my Father and yours, to my God and yours. See, this is the relevance of the resurrection for you and for me this morning. Yes, it is historical. Yes, it is factual. It happened. Plainly speaking, if it hadn't happened, there would be an answer to this question, where is Jesus? No one has ever turned up the body. It's taken as a fact. The resurrection has happened. Yet there is a deeper significance. There is a so what to the resurrection. And it has everything to do with who Jesus is and who you and I might be in him. See, naturally you and I are separated from God on account of our sins. We have displeased him. We have disobeyed him. And he is of purer eyes than to look on evil. He is so holy that he cannot accept us, but must judge us and condemn us because of our sin. Unless, of course, he judges Jesus in our place. Unless, of course, Jesus bridges the gap of our separation from God. We stand condemned unless Jesus stands condemned in our place. Unless the perfect one lays down his life for our sins, we must lay down our own lives for our sins. But the witness of John throughout this book has been that Jesus is the one who lays down his life for our sins. He records very early on that John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, upon seeing him uh, walking in Jerusalem, cried out to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God, speaking of a sacrificial animal, who takes away the sins of the world. Pointing even before Jesus' public ministry began that Jesus would be the sacrificial Lamb who lays down his life for the sins of his people. But do you see that if Jesus never raised from the dead, then 
all of the things that were claimed about him, all the things that were preached about him, all of the things that he said about himself would be worthless and irrelevant. You see, if Jesus stayed in the grave, he would have been just another man. However, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he has, then all of the things that have been preached about him, all of the things that have been said by him, all of the signs that he has performed which testify to his identity are vindicated and shown to be true. Jesus is this very Son of God. And well, if that's the case, then all that is said about Jesus and his work for us is true. You know, at the beginning of this great book, John tells us that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. I'm certain that there are some who are watching this morning who have not yet believed in Jesus, have not yet trusted that he is the Christ, the Savior, and the Son of God. We would want you to know this morning that the Bible is very clear that apart from Jesus, we we have no relationship with God. We don't love him like we ought to love him. We don't relate to him as children to a father, and nor does he relate to us as a father to children. However, through Jesus and faith in him, through believing in his name, receiving him, trusting him, you might become what you deep down long to be reconciled to the Father, forgiven of your sins, and restored to a right and wonderful relationship of a son or a daughter to a father with him. And so the question is, will you believe? I mean, this is John's final piece of evidence for the identity of Jesus. The tomb is empty. He's seen it. He's looked into it. He's testified about it. And he isn't alone in his testimony. The question is, will you believe in Jesus? Will the sign of the resurrection have the significance for you of causing you to understand and to believe in who Jesus is, that you might trust in him this morning, that you might confess your sins to him this morning, that you might ask him to allow you, give you the right to become a child of God. And one of the promises that Jesus makes in this gospel is that all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and that the one who comes to me I will never cast out. That promise is for you this morning. Dear friend, if you're listening this morning and you have heard of the resurrection of Jesus, understand that Jesus has come and has died for our sins, and that he has been resurrected to prove that he is the Son of God. This is the Christian gospel, the good news. It is not fake news. It is good news. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, 
called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel or the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared, shown, proven to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you get all the components there as Paul lists them? The gospel of God concerning his son, declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is who Jesus is. And so who are you? So many of us seek to find our significance and our identity and what we ourselves might achieve, whether it's in the field of our career or our family, maybe our community, our involvement in the community, whatever it might be. We seek to make a name for ourselves and an identity for ourselves based on what we've accomplished. Yet in the end, all that you and I ever are able to accomplish amounts to nothing before the throne of God. The only thing that actually will be taken into account is who Jesus is and whether or not you and I have placed our faith in him. And for all who have, well, God will, Jesus will account you, not in name only, but in fact, a child of the living God. This is the gospel, the good news. Jesus has been raised from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God, enabling you, by faith in his name, to become a son or a daughter of the living God. If you'd like to cry out to Jesus this morning, you might just pray to him confessing your sin and your need of him, confessing your belief that he died for your sins and took the penalty that you deserve and that he rose again. Asking him to change you as you walk with him. Confessing your willingness to obey him as Lord. And if you'll do that this morning, know this. That Jesus will count you a brother or a sister. Son or daughter of the living God. And if you've done that this morning, we want to encourage you to let us know at the church. You can Call or email any of the staff. We'd love to talk to you and follow up with you. What a wonderful way to celebrate Easter in the midst of a global pandemic. To come to believe in the one who brings life even in the midst of death. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this morning as your word rings in our ears and in our hearts, that you would draw us to yourself that you would forgive our sin, that you, the risen Son of God, would make us sons and daughters of the living God by faith in your name. Please give us the right to become children of God by grace, as you've promised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go in his grace.